Our teaching tonight comes from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. And here the Apostle John writes for us the following. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed to her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is God's word. Most of us, I'm assuming, are born and raised in Western culture. As such, that means in the last 50 to 100 years, you're born and raised in a society that had things like space races, and really, all the world benefited from this, but uh, Western civilization has been on the, the forefront of this. Space races, uh, personal computers, the internet, phones, et cetera, et cetera, rapid, you know, advancing technology. And there's, there's an assumption amongst Western peoples that all people have always agreed throughout human history that humanity is on this trajectory towards advancement and progress, like almost inevitably, that we're always moving towards a hopeful future that's better than our past. That's just not the case. Like historically, humans haven't always viewed life that way. In fact, ancient philosophies, ancient religions, uh, different ancient peoples had a tendency to look at life in human history as cyclical. So like there's a season of death and rebirth and the circle of life and the idea that history wasn't really going anywhere, but humans were caught in this pattern. In fact, there is a professor at Columbia, a humanities professor by the name of Robert Nisbet, who a number of years ago wrote a book called The History of the Idea of Progress. And one of the things that he says is the idea of human progress, that we should be hopeful as a human species moving forward because things are going to get better, he would say the only place in human history where people have believed that are people who believed the Bible. In other words, we have absorbed into Western civilization the idea that humans are on a trajectory for something better and more hopeful because we've absorbed in Western culture a biblical worldview. Now, whether or not that sticks, I don't know. But a lot of that reason for hope and optimism comes from what we're looking at tonight. The end of the Bible, the last book, Revelation, the revelation, the dream, the vision that the Apostle John gets from God. And many of you know, I know some of you have actually done the Bible study that Pastor Lyre has been leading on Sunday mornings on Revelation. And there are so many different potential questions and debates surrounding the book of Revelation. It's like the most requested book I get for Bible study because it's so bizarre uh, and it's like fascinating. The problem is you can get lost in the weeds and lost in the details. Uh, details can be interesting, but they're not always necessarily even practically relevant. What's most important, if you just boil it down to its simplest concept, what revelation is there for us, inspired by God, for us to use as, is three things. 
Number one, we understand human history is coming to an end. It's winding down. It won't go on perpetually. Number two, when human history ends, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to judge humanity. And number three, God's people have every reason to be optimistic about what comes next. Those three concepts, human history is winding down. When human history winds down, there will be judgment for humanity by Jesus coming back. And God's people have every reason to be optimistic about the future moving forward. There are endless implications to just those three points. And so we want to meditate a little bit on that tonight. Again, we're looking at the end of the last book, the end of Revelation, in Revelation 21. And we're kind of digging into this concept of why we have hope for that which is new. We'll break it into these three points. Number one, a yet unquenched thirst that humanity has. Number two, a gospel of inheritance. Number three, the transformation of the earth. Okay, those three things I want us to get tonight. A yet unquenched thirst, a gospel of inheritance, and the transformation of the earth. First of all, a yet unquenched thirst. You know, I already alluded to it. Most people, I think when they study the book of Revelation, have a tendency to respond, ah, that's interesting. And I think the appropriate response to that is, no, it's not. It's practical. It's not primarily, I mean, it might be interesting, but that's not why it's written. It's written because it's practical, not because it's interesting. You always have to understand Scripture against the backdrop of what it was originally written into. So when the Apostle John is exiled onto an island on Patmos, he's writing to believers in first century AD who were heavily persecuted, who were losing their lives. So uh, if we went back and we read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's the, the, the churches that the letter is directly delivered to first, you would find they're all facing persecution. In fact, you don't even have to go back there tonight. We can see it just in verse 4, kind of a famous verse that says, when Jesus comes back, he will wipe every tear from believers' eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Very clearly, John is writing to hurting individuals. These are people who are ostracized from their Jewish communities because of their conversion out of that culture and out of that faith. These are people who are being persecuted in their Roman communities. These are people who have lost jobs, they've lost money, they've lost close personal relationships, they've lost perhaps family members to this persecution, like they've actually been killed. I'm not convinced, this is all for the sake of Christ, I'm not convinced that when they were reading Revelation, when they sat down and they studied Revelation, what they were primarily concerned about was discerning what the four horsemen of the apocalypse are, or what the seven seals actually mean, or which of the 50 possible millennial interpretations there were going on there. I think the Apostle John himself is hurting. He's writing to hurting people. He's on the island of Patmos and he's writing to people who are facing death and he wants to give them a living hope. I don't think he's writing to be interesting. I think he's writing to be practical because at the end of the first century AD, Christians all knew people who were impaled on stakes and crucified and given, you know, covered with pitch and, and set on fire by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands, uh, lacing the Roman highway system. And the Apostle John isn't giving them something to distract them from their hurting. He's giving them something that serves as a living hope that it is, in fact, going to be a better future than the past and better than what it is right now. And it works. 
what he did, like historically, there's no denying the message worked because what we find is record of Christians in the first several centuries AD who were facing their death with such a courage and such an integrity they were singing hymns as they were being set on fire. They were singing hymns as they were being pulled apart by the beasts in the Colosseum. And the rest of the world took notice. And the more you killed them, the more the Christian movement grew. Because this hope for the future worked. Living hope is a really powerful thing. There's a book I read years ago by a guy named Viktor Frankl, who is an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist during Auschwitz. And he wrote about his experience in that concentration camp. The book itself is called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. But what he chronicles is that while he was there, a bunch of the other fellow members in the concentration camps would come up to him seeking some kind of support because they knew in the outside world, this is what you do. You counsel people. So can you counsel us? Can you give us some support? And what he says happened is he said it was very interesting. People who had some kind of transcendent hope in their life were significantly more adept from a clinical perspective at dealing with their present suffering. One extreme example that he highlights is a guy who has a dream that the war is going to come to an end on the 30th of that month. And then as they approached the 30th of that month, the reports were very clear that the war is not going to end. And he psychologically, emotionally collapsed. His immune defense system started to go down. Uh, he was less resistant to the diseases that existed in the camp. On the 29th, he contracted a severe fever. On the 30th, he was incapacitated. On the 31st, he died. And what Frankel said is, you know, like, I'm interested about this as a psychiatrist. What gives people the resolve to face things that they otherwise would not be able to face? Because some people survived and some did not. What was the resource that they were turning to? And what he said was, if you had a sufficient and transcendent hope, a sufficient and transcendent hope that there are reasons beyond the current circumstances that things are going to get better, you are able to face things that you otherwise would not be able to face. What's the point? John's doing the exact same thing in Revelation. Revelation is not interesting. It's practical. John was not writing so that people 2,000 years later could have a lot of academic discussion about what the symbols might possibly be. He's writing for people to have a living hope that their hurting will one day go away, that life gets better. Because it's not a blind faith. It's based on a resurrected Savior that will raise you too. Jesus Christ is, his resurrection from the death is the first installment on the life and the planet that actually is to come. And to the degree that you grasp that, you will be able to face stuff in life that you otherwise wouldn't be able to necessarily face. So let me just kind of tie this first point up. If you're, whether you're in a concentration camp or whether you're uh, coming to, who knows if it's the end or not, but it's about two years worth of pandemic, or whether life is going relatively well, but you still deep down inside know something, there's a nagging problem that life isn't quite right. Every human being east of Eden possesses a craving due to their distance from God. A longing for things to get better, to get back to paradise. Now, admittedly, when the circumstances of life aren't great, that like desperation heats up. But more importantly, what is God offering us here? It's a good phrase in verse 6. He says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
Revelation tells us for the believer, living water, soothing, quenching, healing is available. And that's because, in part, the distance to God for us is shortening with each passing year. All right, let's move on to the second point, a gospel of inheritance. So what we've said so far is humans are thirsty. We've been trying to quench our thirst. Another way of looking at that is with the salt water of a fallen world, which if you try to quench your thirst with salt water, it'll counterintuitively actually just make you more sick. And so what Jesus is offering to us is living water. And the nearer we get to the gospel, it gives us a foretaste of what we will one day drink fully when we actually do get to heaven. How do I know that? So this idea of being thirsty, when you think about Jesus on the cross, fascinatingly, there's only so many things that are recorded of what happens during the course of those hours. One of the phrases is, I am thirsty. I thirst. I'll tell you what, I think that is more than a statement of just Jesus could use a drink of water. I, I, like, I really, like, there's a level of obviousness about, like, he doesn't just say, I'm in pain. Well, yep, I'm assuming. You know, you're getting crucified, you're in pain. You're, you're, I'm assuming you're probably thirsty. I think it's much more profound than that. And I think it's partially what John is referencing here when he just a second ago said, to you who are thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. In fact, this is the same John who, remember, unique story in John's gospel. You go back to chapter four and he mentions an encounter that Jesus has with a woman at Jacob's well and she's getting water and he says, oh, I can give you water that will be an everlasting water and you'll never thirst again. And she's like, yeah, that's actually what I need. I think there's also an allusion in here to a famous statement in Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah's gospel. In chapter 55, there's a section where he says, come all you who are thirsty, to the waters, you'll get wine, milk, and water without any cost. So here's the thing. Jesus on the cross is thirsty. I have no doubt he's physically thirsty. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying it's much worse than that. I have a cosmic thirst, a cosmic separation from God, a cosmic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, what Jesus is doing He's taking the cosmic thirst in our place for our sins, for what we deserve, so that he can instead hand that glass of quenching water to us so that we can live eternally, free of charge, satisfied. Jesus is absorbing cosmic death to make all of us, his creation, new. He's paying to give us the satisfaction that you and I have sensed has been missing our entire lives. He offers it to everybody. It's a well that will never dry up. Interestingly, though, we also know not everybody will drink from it. Okay, so who is going to drink from the water of life? Who is going to have their deepest longing satisfied eternally? And there's another interesting phrase in here in verse 7. He says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. I love this line because at first it sounds like he's saying, we'll be satisfied by achieving victory for ourselves. You know, those who are victorious, we always think, okay, well, I have to win a victory. That's not what he's saying. It's very clearly not what he's saying because he says, because it's an inheritance. See, think this through. There are only two basic ways in life to get good things. You can either work for them or you can be gifted them. Gift falls into many different categories and inheritance would be sort of like a gift. You didn't work for it, right? If salvation 
was a victory that we achieved through our own obedience, through our relative goodness, through our own whatever, then what he would say is the victory will be yours as a wage, as a reward, because that's how you get a wage. You work hard for something. But he doesn't say that. He says the victory will be yours. Your victory will be by way of inheritance. What's an inheritance? I think it might be the single best way of describing salvation in the Bible. An inheritance is something good that you get, not because you worked hard, but somebody else had to work hard. And then you had to become relationally connected to them. And then they had to die. How does the salvation of Jesus Christ get into your account? Someone loved you very much and worked very hard before their heavenly father and kept God's will. They loved you enough to adopt you into his family by way of your baptism. And then they died. And when they did, every good thing that they had earned now gets transferred into your account. That is the only way to get salvation. It's by way of inheritance. Anybody who actually tries to get salvation any other way, counterintuitively, actually like forfeits salvation. The only way it can come is when you say, Jesus, this is the ultimate gift that you have earned for me. Because you're not simply even God's people anymore. He says you're God's children and children get an inheritance. God loves to satisfy you because God loves you and God alone can truly satisfy you. All right, let's look at our final point, the transformation of the earth. So again, what we've said so far is it's going to get better. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to get rid of all the nonsense that we currently experience in this life, however you define nonsense, whether it is pandemic disruption from travel plans to be with your family or whether it is uh, the drama that exists in your life for whatever reason or whether it's just a year of deep and painful loss. Honestly, so again, I haven't been doing it necessarily all that long, 14 years. There was an interesting point where I think people thought, oh, we're excited to be done with 2020. And then 2021 hit. And it was like, oh, I have known more people with more significant loss in 2021 than I've known in any other year of my life. Where does the hope come from? How do you know there will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain for the old order of things will pass away and the real life is coming? You know, we all want to know what heaven's going to be like. And it's amazing how shockingly few details the Bible gives us. And I think there's a very specific and logical reason for that. So, for instance, what will it be like to eat something in heaven? We will eat stuff. It's, it's very clear. Jesus, when he rises from the grave, he asks his disciples for a fish and he eats it. It's like, okay, very clearly there's, consum- there's like food consumption. Uh, there's a, a spot in the Psalms where it says on Mount Zion, there will be the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. And therefore we get the idea there will be the physical enjoyment of consumption of the good things that God creates. So, okay, I love pizza. Will I get as much pizza as I want in heaven? There's a problem here because I, the one thing I don't like is onions and mushrooms. And yet, the vast majority of people that I know like onions and mushrooms on their pizza. So when we sit down in heaven as a family meal and we're all partaking, do I have to have disgusting onions and mushrooms on my pizza or not? See, there's logical ways to get out of that. You could say, okay, in our resurrected states, we will be recalibrated so that we enjoy everything that God, our taste buds will be recalibrated to enjoy all of God's good creation. Maybe, but remember, John doesn't write Revelation as a puzzle or a riddle to solve. He writes it as hope for the hurting. So you don't need details. 
You need sufficient evidence and you need sufficient information, but you don't need details to be optimistic about this life. Here's what I mean. I'm not going to reread the whole section. Five key thoughts right in here that we learn about what the heavenly experience is going to be. Number one, it's going to be new. As in everything that's old, everything that's broken down, whether that's you or whether that's your relationships or your life or whatever, it will be made new and better in that sense. Number two, there will be no more sea. Now, this makes more sense to ancient peoples than it does to you and me. Because in the ancient world, the sea was a metaphor for the chaos of life. Sea was also something that inhibited you from being with other people. So remember, John is writing this, exiled to an island, miles away from the people that he desperately wants to be with. So what that means is in heaven, there will be nothing that separates you from the people and the things that you love. Uh, It also says it'll be beautiful. It also says it'll largely be beautiful because God will be dwelling right there with us, just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And he will once again walk with his people. And the final, like the clincher on all this is just think about it, what it won't have. No more mourning, no more pain. No more sadness, no more loneliness, no more sickness, no more getting fired, no more getting rejected, no more being hungry, no more being hurting. If you can just have those five things to meditate on, if you can imagine a life where physically, relationally, psychologically, and spiritually, everything gets fixed, in heaven you will still totally be you, but your life will finally be fixed. So if that's what we get for like 70 or 80 billion years or however long eternity is, what do we do with the 70 or 80 years that we get in this lifetime? If we're so convinced that Jesus has secured our place in eternity, what do we do in the years that we have here? A verse that's been really helpful to me in my adult Christian life is right here in verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, The word here for new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, it's a word that in Greek, it can mean two different things. It can mean new chronologically. It can mean new as in something that is renovated to be made as good as new. And the question here, the interpretation question is, when we get to heaven, will we be going off to a brand spanking new place? Or will we be just renovated to the state of perfection? And I think the Bible makes the case pretty clearly it's the latter option. There will be a perfect renovation of our lives here on earth. Two basic reasons for that. Number one, you notice what God does with our bodies. When you and I die and go to heaven and are resurrected, we don't pull a new body off the shelf and enter into that one. But what God does is he takes the body here that has been ravaged by sin and and hurt And he rebuilds it in such a way so that it's perfect as though it had not been touched by sin. So, if theologically that's what God is going to do with our bodies, does it stand to reason that that might also be what he's going to do with the planet and the rest of the creation that he made? The second reason why I think it's it's a perfect renovation is heaven comes down. It's not us going off. It's heaven coming down. So, like, the heavenly experience is not one where you and your souls fly off into some galaxy far, far away. The heavenly experience is one where Christ himself comes down and remakes this earth into the Eden that it was always intended to be and solidifies it for all eternity. The other reason this is great is because it's incredibly, incredibly practical. It's practical because it means every time you and I work to protect, 
to renovate and to rehabilitate this planet and all the creatures and the relationships on it, it testifies to the work that one day Jesus himself is going to complete. See, it's a little bit like we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper here in a a minute. And what is the Lord's Supper? It's many things. One of the things it is, is it is a foretaste of the banquet meal that we'll get in heaven when we sit down with God's people for forever. When we work for the renovation, rehabilitation, and protection, even of God's people and and the blessings of earth right now, it is a foretaste of what one day Jesus is going to come back and complete in the transformation of the material world. It motivates us. This is as good of a reason as any to motivate us for the alleviating of human suffering. If Jesus is going to come back and make all things new, we can testify to that inevitability by working towards it right now. And here's what I mean. You know this already, part of this, but maybe you haven't thought through all the implications. In heaven, every leg will walk. In heaven, every ear will hear. Every eye in heaven will see. And every mouth in heaven will sing the praises of Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. We can rightly then also conclude that when we come to heaven, what will there also be there? In heaven, every human will use the gifts that God has given them to their fullest. In heaven, every child will be able to read. In heaven, every weapon will be rendered useless. In heaven, every home will be completely secure. In heaven, every resource will be managed really faithfully. In heaven, every diverse people group will be beautifully united. When we make similar things, when the Christian church works together to make similar things happen right now and then points to Jesus as the cause of all of that, the rest of the world gets to see the otherworldly strength and love of Christ Jesus who's coming back to finish that. So let me close like this. On New Year's Eve, you know, everybody makes resolutions. I think you probably all are making resolutions. I've made resolutions. The interesting thing about resolutions, what it means re, uh, resolute means resolving. It means you, to make a resolution, you have to indicate that something isn't quite right and life is not quite right. And I think it's healthy. Uh, again, I have my own and I think it's, it provides some wise uh, planning and accountability for God's people. But here's the resolution that I would encourage you to try to adopt year over year, maybe more than any other. Plan that this year you are going to be more optimistic about the future than any other year in your life. Why? You have less reason to be afraid of the future than any other person on the planet. And you have more reason to give thanks and be optimistic about the eternal trajectory of your future than any other human being on the planet. Because, largely because, we are one year closer to being with God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the blessings and the trials of the past year. We're confident that in all of it, you are ministering to us. We ask that you draw us closer to you and closer to one another, the church in the coming year. We ask that you grant us an otherworldly optimism as we grow in knowing your grace. May it be to the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.
This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.